The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. To the house, This is unbelievable. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. And with the Pac-12 in the books, uh, feel free to go back. we got the Pac-12 North and the Pac-12 South right there for you in your Cover 3 College Football Podcast feed. We turn our attention this week to the Big 12. Uh, coming up a little later in the episode, Ben Kerchival will check in uh, with a final update on the 90s pop music bracket. Uh, but gentlemen, uh, before we dive into this half of the Big 12, we don't have divisions anymore, so uh, we are going to be tackling the four Lone Star State schools that would be Texas, Texas Tech, TCU, Baylor, and West Virginia. It fits. I don't know. It's weird. But, uh, gentlemen, how are we doing? Surviving. Surviving for me. You guys want to hear my latest Corona uh, Chronicles? Yes. Coronavirus Chronicles? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So my wife and my four-year-olds are just in an all-out war at this point. It's it's just that there's, there's some serious venom going on. So just today, this morning, 10.30 text, I'm in the, like, wife says, trying to scooter, and they both stopped in the middle of the street at the very end, crying and won't move. I just carried a screaming tally and scooters all the way back home now. This is, this, my wife is, like, basically third trimester pregnant at this point, too. Uh, this was during a, I'm in, like, a work call, and I can't even do anything about this. Then about an hour later, Scout just pissed all over her bed. I'm throwing in the towel today. I'm done. And this is all on top of our big issue right now is Scout and Tally are both going around saying, effing God, effing God. Only they're not using effing. They're using the actual word. (laughs) Because Where did they pick that up from? Because in a fit of frustration, uh, one of us, I'm not even sure which one, Used used that <laughs> phrase just once, but was and <laughs> it's it's stuck. Um, so that's our current quarantine chronicles. 
not not only is there just uh not not only is there a war for for power an intergenerational war for power within the family but also all decency has been lost right um, yeah, this is a gentleman's <laughs> In the gentleman's fight anymore. And scouts going full blitzkrieg with F bombs and P bombs. So. Right. <laughs> it's, it's hard. To, it's a little. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I don't know where the bottom is at this point. If we're going to just start pissing all over each other to, to try to prove a point, then because she's fully potty trained, to be clear, like she knows exactly what she's doing. At at two twelve, uh, Barton's thrown in the towel. He said, "Monday has had enough. We're going to call it a day." <laughs> well goodness uh tom how's the how's the quarantine chronicles uh over in uh in your neck of the woods uh pretty much the same i mean coming off the weekend i, I wasn't working this weekend of course <laughs> what's the difference these days but yeah so kind of just hung out and watched a whole lot of netflix and tv and really haven't done anything nothing much has changed nobody's peeing on the bed there are no wars the dog is being kind of annoying on walks because i've i've discovered now frankie is a shy dog so like when people come up to her she tends to back away or not want anything like oh can i pet your dog or whatever she'll back away like not leave leave me the hell alone but now that we live in a world where when we're walking like if somebody's coming the other way either we'll get off the sidewalk or that person will get off the sidewalk once that person starts moving away, Frankie becomes really interested in that person. <laughs> like mm. she starts wanting to go like, where are you going? Why don't you come, want to come talk to me and be my friend? It's like, no, come on, let's go. So she's being really annoying trying to walk her when you're trying to, you know, to follow the social distancing guidelines and your dog for the first time in her life is, no, I want to be everybody's friend. So the social distancing thing, like that's a really weird, like, uh, when we're outside and I mean, I feel like everyone is so locked in. You kind of, you want to be social. You want to smile at people and, and have some sort of camaraderie. But when you're outside these days, everyone is so standoffish and they mm-hmm. want to stay as far away from you. They don't want to make eye contact with you. They don't want to say hi. Cause they don't know if you're going to get too close to them. You don't know if they're going to, you're going to try to shake their hand. So it's a very bizarre world outside where, like no one really wants to interact with anybody. At least that's the way it is in Nashville right now. Yeah, and it, I I'm in heaven because generally when I'm walking the dog in a normal world, I don't want to talk or deal with other people. <laughs> so it's like I don't look or even smile or say hi, you know, unless it's like you know an older person, then I'll be you know whatever. But now that I know that this person wants nothing to do with me. Just like I don't want anything to do with them. I'm nicer than I've ever been before. I'm smiling and saying, hi, how are you? As we're walking by and then you just keep walking because you know you're not going to get in a conversation with this person because that person doesn't want to talk to you. So I think it's great. On brand. I mean, mostly nice. Everybody's respectful and definitely the like, we're not going to crowd the sidewalk moves or cross the street if possible just to allow free passageway. But I mean, this weekend we started doing some like flybys, you know, your, like your friends are sitting on the porch. You're a good, like, I don't know, 40 feet away on the street. Just go walk over, stand in the street, say, Hey, for about 10 minutes and walk back. It's a little bit friendly. It's not, it's not quite as, uh, it's not quite hostile, but you know, that could change. We'll see. Yeah. 
and and my block has like a lot of families on it. So since this has started, like there's one family across the street from us who every night at seven o'clock is like playing music and, you know, like people are going outside and being on their porches or whatever and just like listening to music and talking or they're doing like scavenger hunts where you're supposed to put stuff in your windows for like the kids on the block to try to find them. Yeah. Bear hunts and Easter egg hunts. Yeah. So like that kind of stuff. So in a weird way, it's kind of like a mini block parties going on every other day, but you know, I, (laughs) I'm also me, so I'm not getting too involved. (laughs) (laughs) Like I went out, like when they're playing the music, I'll go out sometimes if I like the song and just be a presence, but I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to talk to anybody because like that's one of the things too with our job where every fall they have we have like there's two block parties to hear here there's one in the late spring and then there's usually one in the fall and it's always on a Saturday so in, with the fall one I have an excuse where I don't have to go <laughs> in the spring one it's like okay I'll just go make an appearance say hi to people and then go home and get back about my day but now so it's like I, I you just I don't want to be like an a-hole now I'm trying to be nicer to people because I feel like people need to be nicer to each other right now. I made a mask this weekend out of some with, uh, a, with a bandana cloth napkin and uh, d- a, the drawstring from some double XL Oklahoma State basketball shorts from like 2005. Oh, so that's like a true like like straight up MacGyver style mask. Yeah, I, I mean it took like little uh, not paper clips, but you know those bigger paper clips that you do over like a, a, a legal document that might have 20 pages or something like that. Like it's more of a clasp. Mm-hmm. So I got some of those to get the little drawstring on, cut the drawstring to the right size. I just, I, I want to make it expressly clear to, uh, to anybody who sees me in it that I did not hoard the N95 medical masks. This is 100% <laughs> not one of the ones that everyone is short of. I just made this at home. I have I have a buff which I've been using. Are you? Go- I don't know what a buff is. Uh, do you ever watch Survivor? Oh yeah. Or like you the know, neck like the, things. The colored buffs they get for their tribes. Those things are sick. Yeah, it's one of those. Except you know, it's not like a Survivor one. It's just it's from the same company. It's a plain black one. But it you know I, I put it over my face, double it up, and it works just fine. Masking up. Mm-hmm. Life. It, li- I don't. It it makes people feel more comfortable. I'll do it. I don't. I don't. I don't exactly enjoy walking around with one on right now because I feel like a moron. But everybody else is doing it, so okay, fine. We're not quite the full neighborhood masking up for like walks around the neighborhood. But if I if I have to go in somewhere or if I'm going downtown, I'll mask up. See, think it's getting weirder here because. When it first was happening, you know, like when I would take the dog for the walks, our normal times, it was the streets were as full as they ever were at those times. But now in the le- couple weeks ago, since they closed like the lakefront down and like the lakefront trails, everybody who would walk their dog or go running or go biking along the lakefront is not allowed to do that. So it's like now when I take the dog out in this neighborhood, it's like there's people everywhere, man. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of, you know. It's like, okay, fine. And they're all wearing masks. So it's like, okay, fine. I'll put a mask on and make everybody feel more comfortable about it. And, you know, just, yeah, don't talk to me and we're fine. Peer, peer pressure in the time of Corona. What yeah, a time. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, uh, let's, let's go ahead and dive into our, our Big 12 spring gleaning. And uh, we begin on this particular half of the Big 12 with one of our two 
Big 12 championship game participants with the Baylor Bears. Uh, obviously, a a banner year for Baylor, the best season that the Bears have had since they finished just outside of the college football playoff in 2014. The Bears went 11-3 and overall, 8-1 and in conference play. Uh, Matt Rule, in his three years, was able to turn 1-11 in 2017 to that 11-3 and record. Uh, he goes off to the Carolina Panthers, and what do we do? We go and we hire Dave Aranda from the defending champion LSU Tigers. A pretty incredible pretty great opportunity for Aranda, somebody who at one point was maybe in the running for the UNLV job. Now he's not only at a Power 5 job, but at a Power 5 program that has had a lot of infrastructure, a lot of uh, foundation work that is built. He brings in Jorge Munoz and Larry Fedora to run the offense. Fedora, who was obviously former North Carolina coach, was the analyst at Texas. Jorge Munoz comes from LSU, where he was part of that offensive analyst staff under the guidance of Joe Brady and Steve Ensminger. Defensive coordinator goes to hire Ron Roberts, who was actually Aranda's boss way back at Delta State. Former Southeastern Louisiana head coach, somebody who Dave Aranda, by his own words, attributes a lot of his uh, schemes and a lot of his you know X's and O's ideology stuff he got from Ron Roberts. Now that defense is particularly interesting as we dive into Baylor because nine starters are gone from that Baylor defense, including All-American defensive lineman James Lynch off to the NFL early. They are last in the Big 12 in Bill Connolly's returning production rankings, number 108 overall and number 127 on defense. Speaking of that, Bill C. does have Baylor checking in around number 33 in in his preseason SP Plus rankings. So we're looking at turnover at head coach, first-year head coach, um, you know, a lot lost on defense. Charlie Brewer is back among some other pieces on offense, but I guess I wanted to start this question of what do you think this team's identity is going to be? Like, what are the aspects that a Baylor fan is looking to and says, that's our strength right now? Because if we expect this to be a top 40 type team, something's got to be good. And right now, I just think the fact that Dave Aranda is unproven as a head coach, I don't know if you can hang it just on Dave Aranda. What do we think is going to be Baylor's strength? Offense. At least for the first year, because I mean they they do get more experience back on offense. But just a minor correction: they're they're last in the Big Twelve in returning defense production. They're not last overall. Uh, and last in the conference overall is the team that's always in last in the Big Twelve. It's Kansas. Kansas, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is a team. It's they're another one of those teams where where everybody's kind of thrown out of whack right now. This is a especially difficult situation for Baylor because of those things you mentioned. It's not just the amount of guys who are gone on defense. It's the coaching staff is gone. Matt Rule's gone. Dave Rand is coming in to take over and it's he's taking his very first head coaching job and he's got like a lot of players to replace and they're missing a lot of time. So I feel like in a vacuum with what you look at how Baylor did last year, it was natural to expect that there was going to be some kind of regression in 2020 as it is simply because we're talking about a team that won 11 games. And it's, you know, it's not crazy to think they might only win nine or 10, which would be regression. But you throw all that other stuff in there and now it's like, oh, you know, this is this is a team that's going to take a step back. And then you look at last season and you see they got Iowa State at home, one by two. They had Oklahoma at home. They lost by three. They had Texas at home. They won by 14. This year, all those games 
are on the road. They've got to play Oklahoma on the road, Texas on the road, Iowa State on the road, West Virginia on the road, Texas Tech on the road. So just naturally looking at all that stuff, it's really hard to think that even had Matt Rule come back, this was a team that was going to win 11 games again. This was a team that would go 8-1 and one and play in a Big 12 championship. So that's where I start. And I think there are a lot of questions on with the defense not knowing he's going to be back. So when you add all this stuff, you add the lack of spring practice, everything comes together and it's like, I don't think Baylor's going to fall off a cliff, but I think we're kidding ourselves if we were sitting here saying this is a team that's favored to get back to the Big 12 championship. Yeah, one of those deals where I think you just you got to sort of set your expectations in the appropriate place. Uh, because last year, they sort of caught lightning in a bottle. They, they caught fire. They had the right roster. They had the, the upperclassmen were all there. The, you know, they were experienced. They had playmakers on the line of scrimmage on the defensive line. Um, they had a quarterback, big play guys at receiver, like all those things. And so I think when I look at their roster now, I still see the same caliber of players, but they're just, they haven't been doing it as long. And so I think this is where we see if the Matt Rule evaluation methods really sort of pan out um, and if they have staying power beyond uh, a, a nice year last year. Um, but I mean, uh, you, you, there's some really unique players that I think will kind of be introduced to. Kalen Barnes was like a, a 10 500 meter guy in high school, which is like Olympic level. He's a cornerback um, or, or pacing towards Olympic level rather. Uh, they've got like Garmin Randolph, who's a who redshirted last year, who's sort of penciled in as an outside linebacker type. That was a, a lot of people recruit him as a tight end, big long bodied kid. That's, that's really unique from a, from a size standpoint that, Hey, like if he's developed over the last year, then he could be a pretty good guy in his in his first full year of action. I think they still have some good talent at, at receiver, some still still have some, some elite speed there. Like I, they have guys. That's why. But I think that the tricky thing here is not only do you have to just reset expectations based on what Tom was saying in terms of like how close they won and and how they got a little bit lucky last year as is, but also just in terms of accum- like adapting to this new system and the new scheme on both sides of the ball. So yeah, this feels like an eight and four kind of season to me. Eight and four might be a good thing. Might be an upper, upper end of things. Yeah, I think so. Um, and that's, I don't, I don't have the, that that's a feel thing. Eight and four could be right because the, I haven't even looked at their schedule. Yeah. Who do they play? Who do they play non-conference? Uh, their non-con starts with Ole Miss and then they get Ole Miss. Yeah, Actually, and then I mean, they, that'll be a, that'll be an interesting game. I, I, yeah, that's that's not just some game. Where I think you know that that that's kind of a coin flip. But then they've yeah. also got Incarnate Word, which you know whatever. And then Louisiana Tech. Our our brow scheduled that one. Mm-hmm. So it's it's Ole Miss, Incarnate Word, and Louisiana Tech. All right. So they'll so get two of those. They they'll should be at least two and one out of that. Yeah. The TCU game was a, a weird one. The West Virginia game was a weird one. There were a lot of games in Baylor's schedule that broke the right way in a way that I would probably attribute some of it to the intangibles that are guys that had been playing since their freshman year, guys that had been playing together. Like the the stuff that Matt Rule was chirping about 
as as Baylor was coming down the stretch. You know, he was he would always be there on those uh, sideline interviews right before the game started. Those guys out there, they were there for one and eleven. They know what this is about. You know, getting all fired up about it. And I I uh, I'm you know if if you're looking at luck metrics and you're trying to figure out like where things might break the other way, I'm I am absolutely with y'all in thinking that Baylor's not gonna you know, totally fall, like just, just out of nowhere, but where, um, you know, as, and we're going to get into it a lot this week. And I know that this is kind of a common theme, but if we are going to imagine that there's going to be some more big 12 wins for teams like Texas, TCU, even a West Virginia an Oklahoma state, an Iowa state, a Kansas state, well, they've got to come against somebody and I kind of feel like Baylor might be in in one of those positions where we look up at the end of the season, and it's like a seven and five overall, five and four in conference play type record. Yeah, that sounds more yeah. reasonable. the The other thing that I think is an interesting challenge here for the Baylor side of for, for this new coaching staff is so Matt Rule took over. Um, what was he was one and eleven his first year, right? And right. And then the, the year before he showed up. Uh, they were already sort of heading heading in the wrong direction, um, and so at that point, you know, Matt, Matt Rule had their attention. Uh, I started, I started, I started making this point as I think through it. Like Matt Rule really did have a challenge, I guess, because he had to change the culture and he had to change the um, sort of get them to believe when a lot of those guys really were, were firm Art Briles believers from the previous regime, it wasn't as if they hadn't had success prior. So like that was a serious challenge that Matt rule, you got to give him credit for getting them on board. Um, obviously the guys that this current roster are major believers in Matt rule because of what he accomplished there. And so where I was going initially was like the idea that the, the challenge now of Dave Aranda without even having face to face interaction with them this spring to sort of win the roster over and get them on board to buy into what he's doing. I guess the the positive in that regard, like the spring is just, I don't think he's too different stylistically as a coach than Matt Rule. I think they're probably more similar than there are than than they are not. Um, but I think that's a that's an interesting sort of psychological challenge that that the staff has got. Um, and, and in terms of personnel, is additionally like spring football one, one battle that I, I was really fascinated in sort of watching would have been Jerry Bohannon and, and Jacob Zeno for the backup quarterback job because Charlie Brewer stayed injured mm-hmm. you know he was always getting concussed and and I think that I mean one or two more of those shots and you know, I it would not surprise me if he doesn't finish the season and so who do they have behind him how good is he and it's because Jacob Zeno in that big 12 championship game like flashed y'all remember that oh second yeah second half yeah mm-hmm. so I, i'd be just sort of curious what that team looks like with the you know w- w- with whoever the backup is and and what that does for them and, and the offense and larry fedora so i think there's some interesting sort of storylines to follow that that would have been fun to track in the spring and uh to follow up on your point not only had things started to go in the wrong direction before Matt Rule came to take over, but the university had punted on the 2016 season, bringing in Jim Grobe to be an interim. That's right. So he was basically, yeah. So like they were just th- th- that would have probably been an easier sell 
than maybe I initially gave it credit for because they were just looking for someone to believe in, just looking for a coach to, to, to sort of believe in them. Um, that was a weird time. Very, very strange time, but uh, obviously good work done by Matt Rule and potentially uh, to the advantage of Dave Aranda. Without a doubt, Baylor is one of the uh, more intriguing teams to look at when we get a first crack at football whenever it comes back again because we got no spring practice, got a coaching staff that is Zooming it up. And, uh, and speaking of coaching staffs that are having to just get it all done on Zoom, we turn our attention to the Texas Longhorns. So we've got seven new coaches in total for Tom Herman. Such an overhaul that Tom Herman had to go and consult with the godfather, Brian Kelly. Oh, Brian Kelly, how do we do this? Both coordinators headline uh, this staff turnover. Chris Ash is his new defensive coordinator. Herman and Ash worked together on the national championship Ohio State team in 2014. Uh, Also, former Ohio State quarterbacks coach Mike Yursich comes in to call the offense as the new offensive coordinator. You've got 16 starters back with uh, headliner being the iconic Texas quarterback Sam Ellinger, uh, but no Devin Duvernay, no Colin Johnson. A couple other spots that you know we're going to be curious to keep an eye on. They bring a lot back on the defensive side of the ball. Barton, I know that you in uh, in one of your bounce back uh, items pointed to your boy Caden Stearns and this uh, this defensive backfield for Texas, which uh, has not had a good, did not have a good 2019. Texas's defense in general did not have a good uh, 2019. Uh, so I guess um, who will Texas beat and in what bowl for their back declaration in 2020? <laughs> um, man, I don't know. I'm not. I, I I haven't gotten there with with this team. I'm still just trying to figure out what they are in the spring. But this is another team that's that's. Um, look, I mean, to this year kind of has to be the year, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just if they go eight and four this year, that's just that's going to be. I, even though it seems like that is that's not that unlikely of happening. And yet, it should be wildly disappointing, should it not? If they go eight and four, yep, yes. And uh, so, I, I mean, they they have Sam Ellinger back, obviously. They should be healthier in the backfield. Um, they, Keontae Ingram, will be back. They've got the number one running back in the country coming in, uh, and Bijan Robinson. Um, they have the quarterback turned running back, whose name I'm blanking on, uh, who had a pretty good freshman year last year. Like they, they should be healthier at running back. Uh, Roshan Johnson was who I was thinking of. Wide receiver, like they they still have Brennan Eagles. They still have some really talented freshmen that just sort of got their feet wet last year. Um, and their their secondary is continues to be one of the most talented position groups that hasn't played up to that ability yet. And partially because of the injuries. Right. But there's no reason to think they shouldn't just be stacked on the back ends. So, I don't know, new defense, new system, um, hopefully better up front. I, I don't know how good I think they're going to be. I just know they, they really should be good and they have no excuse not to be. 
Well, eight and four would just be more of the same for the Texas Longhorns. The unacceptable right. just falls at the feet of Tom Herman. Right. What do you think, Tom? I mean, yeah, this is the team that you mentioned when going back to the returning production. If you look, there are two new coordinators, but the only team coming back with more experienced or at least production in the conference is Oklahoma State. Texas ranks 21st overall, although they're 62nd on offense, but 14th on defense. And you just break it down. You know, there's seven starters back on offense. There's nine starters back on defense. So defense in particular, which is probably their biggest weakness last year, I think all three of us can agree, you would hope that with Chris Ash coming in to take over the defense and with so much experience coming back that that is a unit that will take a step forward. And if it does that should lead to more wins. It's just this is still also a team that it opens the year with South Florida at home, which should be a win. But then, you know, it's going to LSU this year. It's it's making the return trip to Baton Rouge. And maybe that game is more winnable than we think with all the changes going on at LSU. But that's still a very tough thing to ask a Texas team to go into Baton Rouge and beat LSU in a game like that. So... This is a team that's probably going to be two and one entering conference play, and it's got you know Kansas State on the road to open before the next week, getting Oklahoma in their annual rivalry game. So this is this is a team that needs to get off to a fast start because with the pressure that is on them, and with Tom Herman, you know, now entering year four without really living up to the hopes and expectations, this is one of those situations where if they get off to a bad start. This thing could crumble really quickly. We could see everything fall down and just completely derail the entire season. So I think that's what's going to be important to me. I think, you know, September in that first game in October going to Kansas State, if they could play well on the road against LSU and at least stay competitive there and not get blown out, and then they can win that game at Kansas State heading into the Oklahoma game, I think this is a team that could end up reaching the Big 12 title game. I think we've talked about it from a talent perspective. They're right up there with anybody in the conference for the most part. And you mentioned bringing in B. John Robinson at running back. I think that is something that they have sorely missed in this offense is a very good running game and a very solid running back. And hopefully Robinson, even if he is a freshman, he's a very highly rated freshman. Hopefully he can bring that aspect to an offense that has sorely lacked it in the last few years because that would be a big step forward for them and help them out and also take some of the load off of Sam Ellinger's shoulders because he's been a little bit too responsible having to move the ball on the ground and serving as a battering ram at times too. And I don't think that's good for him long-term or good for the team long-term. So there's a lot of questions. Hopefully Mike Yersich could do for Texas what we've seen a lot of offensive coordinators do for programs coming in and just injecting fresh blood and new ideas and suddenly things start to click and that progress is made and the success is there and i think the ingredients are there but like i said if they get off to a slow start i mean it's it's gonna snowball it's gonna avalanche it's gonna fall apart really quick when injuries have an a dramatic impact on the final record in the same way that they did for Texas last year where the by the end of the season the you know were there any running backs left our offensive line was was a major major issue they they finished the year losing three out of their last five games including back-to-back not like back-to-back losses to Iowa State and Baylor on the road Iowa State two-point loss uh, they lost to a TCU team that did not make a bowl game like the the disconnect between we were right there against the future national champions, LSU, and we lost by 10 to a TCU team that ended up going like three and nine or four and eight. Like the, 
the disconnect there is is too frustrating for Texas fans to be able to take. And so when you've decided that you're going to make all these changes and you've continued to like recruit at a, I mean, like there's, there's no drop off in Texas recruiting, right? Barton, like every single time we've talked about it, they've been putting together the kinds of classes that we would expect. They're not top five classes, but it's not as though there is. I remember we had a reader, a listener question in a, an edition of the mailbag with uh, it was sort of offhanded reference, the, a drop off in Texas recruiting, and we had to call it, you know, call it into consideration. You point to the the scoreboard right there. Texas has been doing all right. I just, I the ups and downs, uh, the wild ride of Texas football is. Uh, I I know it's like I I can understand there's thin margins, but I think that we've got to hold them to that. It's just going to be unacceptable to be able to always be falling on the short side of those thin margins. Yeah, I mean they they have the I mean the the class that's really been interesting uh, because they have recruited at a high level, but the number their number three class in the country was two years ago, which were the, the group that was freshmen this past year, and, and we've we've done a um, autopsy of this class before, I, I think. But when you look at the way this class played out in terms of getting that punch from it. Brew McCoy transferred back to USC before he played a snap and was and has dealt with health issues his entire first semester there, first year there. Jordan Whittington, their second highest rated recruit, uh, dealt with hernia issues all year long, never really played as a freshman. To Gabriel Floyd had like spinal stenosis or something and and was and this had to retire from football. Um they had another running back, Darian Brown, who had a stroke before he showed up on campus. Like, there was some, and that's all those names I listed were like among their top twelve recruits. Yeah. Uh, so it's a we like they have recruited well, but they've they've had some odd luck on the recruiting trail in terms of getting those guys to produce right away. Again, that number three class is now in their second year this year. Some of those guys will be healthier. They'll obviously be more experienced in the program. So maybe we see them make a bigger impact. Um, so, but and and you know that was the that was their two consecutive number three classes though. The other classes that Caden Stearns class, Jalen Green, Demarvion Overshone, Brennan Eagles, all those guys, and they're all playing, and most of them are pretty good players. Um, it's almost like individually they're all impressive, but what is the, the sum of their parts equaling right now at Texas is still questionable. So you said it before, uh, it kind of falls on Tom Herman to get it all pulled together. Coming up on the other side, whether TCU will have a strong bounce back from one of its worst seasons in the big 12 era. Look and then looking ahead at year two for Neil Brown at West Virginia and Matt Wells at Texas tech next The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, we mentioned it before the break. Uh, the And it was, excuse me, I said well before the break, TCU went 3-9 and nine or 4-8. and eight. Neither. TCU is 5-7, and 3-6 and six in conference play. It's the second worst season in the Big 12 era. Uh, in 2012, they went 4-8, and eight, but what happened uh, after that? They bounced back with... Uh, I guess it's 2012 or 2013. Uh, then they come back a couple years later, 12 and one in 2014. TCU actually had a chance to be bowl eligible going into the final week of the season. They lost 20 to 17 in the final week of the regular season to fall short of bowl eligibility. Very, very disappointing. It's a TCU team that beat Texas took Baylor to triple overtime and lost to Oklahoma by only four points in Norman. Now, the big headline's all about quarterback Max Duggan, who won the starting job as a true freshman in the second week of the year, and he had to do a lot of the offensive responsibility, making plays with his feet, uh, getting it through the air to Jalen Rager. Jalen Rager, by the way, who is gone. Running back Darius Anderson is gone. Running back Siwo Alan... Hold on. Dang, I practiced it. Shewo Alanilua. Alanilua. Shewo Alanilua. I said Alanilua so many times this morning. Uh, offensive line returns just one full-time starter. Big question for me. Defensively, where are the game changers on this team? Like, where's who's who's getting the sacks? Who's getting the interceptions? We've got some maybe like top 40, top 50 kind of preseason expectations for TCU and certainly expectations for Max Duggan to have another big step forward. I think Max Duggan can be a top five quarterback in the league, but is there enough around him on both sides of the ball for TCU to be a top five team in the Big 12? I mean, you asked where, you know, like on defense, the playmakers, it's where were they last year? I mean, <laughs> this is a team that uh, the leading sack, the two guys tied for the lead in the team in sacks at three and a half. It was Garrett Wallow and Ross Blacklock. Blacklock's gone. He might be a first round draft pick. Grant, Garrett Wallow's back, so that's good, but he's also a linebacker. There, there wasn't a whole much pass rush coming from the defensive line on this team. Ochuan Mathis had two and a half sacks last year as a freshman. Maybe that's a guy who another year in the program is somebody you can look for to maybe make a larger impact there. But then on the back end of this defense, when you think of Gary Patterson defenses, you know, they, they play that four, two, five. There are a lot of defensive backs on the field at all times to help combat the kind of spread air raid offenses that you run into a lot in the big 12 and in Texas in general. Well, you, you know, you lose your best defensive back from last year's team. He'll probably be a first-round pick himself in Jeff Gladney, who's going to be probably early second at the latest. He's gone. Your other starter is Ju- Julius Lewis. He's gone. So there's not a ton of experience at corner on this team coming back. And when we look at how Gary Patterson's TCU teams have gone, there have always been, like, every once in a while he has one of those down or reset years. But they tend to bounce back. Like we saw when TCU first joined the Big 12, they had the 7-6, and 4-8 and eight season, but that was when they were adjusting to the conference, and then bang, 2014 rolls around. They go 12-1. and one. A lot of people thought they should have made the college football playoff. They get left out, but they go to the Peach Bowl. They win it. Then they're 11-2, and two, and then in 2016, they dropped to 6-7, and seven, come back with an 11-3 and three season in 2017, and last year at this time, 
we were saying, well, they're coming off a seven and six season. It could have just been another one of those reset years. We'll see if they're able to bounce back. And they regressed. They went five and seven. They missed the bowl game. And I think that this is a big year for TCU because there are those questions on defense. I think that, like you said, Chip, Max Duggan, the quarterback, always gets a ton of attention. And I think that is very important for this team going forward. But the hallmark of TCU and Gary Patterson's teams have always been its defense. And that defense just hasn't really lived up to what you expect from a Gary Patterson team the last few years. And if that unit doesn't take a step forward in 2020, I have a hard time thinking that TCU as a whole is going to take a step forward in 2020. So for me, it's that pass rush and it's the secondary. Those are the two things that I'm really interested in seeing how they go this year for the Horned Frogs. I think there's, I mean, I think that they've got some pretty good players on the back end of the secondary. Like the Trevon Mooring was one of the best freshmen in college football last year. Or Darius Washington is, is a dude as well. Or he was what Mooring was a, what a sophomore last year, um, and, and so I, I think that the, the safety position is is pretty sound. I think to me, like last year was just sort of representative of the variance you see from a true freshman at quarterback, and I'm just wondering if we see a steadier flow on offense, uh, more less ups and downs, a, a better identity of, of, of who they want to be or how, or how they can attack teams consistently. Um, I mean, if Max Duggan, because I think Max Duggan is really talented, and and yet he wasn't necessarily confidence-inspiring last year. He was like a highlight guy. You know, every once in a while, you, you, know, you, you see a clip floating around of a big throw he made or an impressive run, but... You look up at the end of the day, and his stats were, you know, fifteen of thirty-two or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it, it, it's. I want to see how they can get him more comfortable or make him a more consistently dangerous threat at quarterback. And obviously, they got to do it without one of their best playmakers on offense, and they're both their running backs. But I don't know. I, I've I've stopped trying to predict Gary Patterson teams. When I think I've got it figured out, the pattern figured out, they, you know, they, they shocked me again, good or bad. So I don't really know what to expect from this team, but I do feel confident that it's going to boil down to, you know, how consistent they can get that offense with, with Max Duggan at quarterback. Um, did I mention earlier? Isn't Doug Meacham back? Yeah, he is back as a. Is he a, like a tight ends coach or I something? Ti- I don't know what his title is, but yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I think he's back on the on the staff. You got Doug Meacham back on the staff. You've got Jerry Kill uh, as an offensive analyst or as an off field coach uh, overseeing some of the offense. It's a uh, it's a it's a strange year for for TCU in terms of of what to try and expect because that's uh that's. That's got all the makings of in just looking at the the pieces that are around there and just looking at the performance from last season. It's got all the makings of a like right fine perfectly fine right in the middle of the Big 12 kind of season. You know, 5 and 4 or 4 and 5 in conference play and you know, probably going to make a bowl game but probably not going to contend for the big 12 title but on on the other hand like i think that the the ceiling is probably not much higher than that 
but the floor is still there because if if Max Duggan regresses, if Max Duggan gets hurt, if all of a sudden um, you know the defense isn't able to to shore up a little bit, I I think that it's it's not a like big picture program nerve wracking danger zone season for TCU, but I do think that it would be uh, it would be advantageous for the the comfort of all the TCU fans and everybody who's invested in the success of that program, that this, that this be a year where they meet expectations because I, I, I don't know where you're, I don't know where you're looking when you're analyzing the TCU program and you're saying like, all right, well, we just got to get through this year and then things are going to turn around because asking Gary Patterson to sort of work his wizardry year after year, after year, after year, I, I wonder, I mean, I know we're talking about a coach when we do the coach rankings that is going to somehow be generate a ton of discussion because how do you measure what he's done for a program? How do you measure the overachieving that TCU teams have done before? Because again, I, I think that now we just got to measure TCU by current standards and current standards right now for TCU, even with that great season in 2014, I feel like current standards are yeah middle of the pack, big 12. I mean, is there is there any reason that that they should be grouped uh, otherwise? Not right now. Yeah, I mean, they they were there a couple of years ago where they were one of those teams in the conference where you thought they were one of the top tier teams, but nothing the last couple of years has suggested that that's who they are and that they're kind of just a mid mid conference right now. Uh, also, I want to mention that since I since I called UCLA out for it on the last episode. TCU, you got two road non-conference games, man. What are you doing? I understand that with SMU, it's kind of the iron skill at the rivalry that goes back and forth. So maybe you could say that's not even really a road game because it's right down the street for the most part. But you got Cal on the road to start the season. Then you get Prairie View and then you're on the road for SMU. Come on, guys. Got to think smarter than that. So they could be one and two in non-con play. They could be. Like I, I think that I think it's safe to say they're probably two and one. Although that Cal game on the road, that is not going to be simple. And SMU on the road, SMU is a good team last year. That's not going to be simple. But yeah, I would think two and one, but one and two is enough of a possibility that, man, they could be entering Pac or Big 12 play already in a hole. In the first half of the last decade, TCU was damn near going undefeated, playing in Rose Bowls, playing, beating up on Ole Miss and Peach Bowls. And we start this next decade, and he's turned TCU into his alma mater. TCU is just Kansas State. Perfectly fine team with a wizard coach. Chip said it. <laughs> Don't commit me. Uh, you two, you're going to have two fan bases coming after you now. Kansas Jerry State. Patterson's ain't- going to be in your DMs. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I had forgotten. Can can you retell that story just for listeners who might not remember? It was about uh, looking at their recruiting class, right? Yeah, they're about to play Texas, and uh, the um, I had written a story about how they were getting the guys that Texas didn't necessarily want, and beating them with those guys, and those guys were better than the guys that Texas was getting, and someone took the headline i mean whoever whoever edited the story and posted it headlined it like and i and somewhere i put in there you know tcu's rejects are crushing texas's players or something whatever and uh someone basically made that the headline and gary patterson took offense to it 
tweeted tweeted at CBS, and his and the horde of, of horn frogs got ornery, and my de- my 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 uh, mentions were pretty bad there for about a week. Anyways, Gary, it's at Chip underscore Patterson with two T's. <laughs> hey, I, I, hey, Uncle Gary, prove to me in 2020 that TCU is not turning into Kansas State. You got down. <laughs> change, change my mind. I'm sitting at, at, with a card table in the middle of the quad. Change my mind. All right, uh, on to on to West Virginia. Another passionate fan base that has come for everybody at some point. Uh, West Virginia went five and seven overall, three and six in conference play. Started the year three and one. Took down NC State. So, you know, I guess they would have liked to have finished. Uh, in a bowl game based on the way that things w- started the at the beginning of the year. But at the same time, I, I can't help but sense that for the, where the expectations were for Neil Brown's first season, you know, that, I mean, Dana Holgerson's last year was like all, I mean, they, they lost so much off that team. You know, it was like Dana could, he could kind of see, uh, you know, where things were looking in terms of the, the uh, the projections for the for the upcoming fiscal year uh, as uh, as he got out of town and uh, and headed on to Houston. So what do we have as we ha- go into twenty twenty year two for Neil Brown? Um, trying to get back to a bowl game after missing the postseason for the first time since two thousand thirteen. Austin Kendall started the year, but Jarrett Dagey finished the year. So we've got ourselves a little interesting QB competition. Uh, on paper, the skill positions are not. Uh, carrying a whole lot of star power, though you know some de- some light digging certainly provided some candidates for players that could step up or have breakout seasons. I think that the expectations nationally, we're still talking about a team that is going to be about middle of the pack in the FBS picture, maybe lower tier, power five, top sixty-five, top seventy type of expectations. But as um, as as we look at West Virginia moving forward and uh, and what Neil Brown was able to do, it you know what's the what is the leap? What is the trajectory? We always say it's never linear, but can it at least from year one to year two be a step forward for the Mountaineers? For me, when I look at this team in 2020, you know, yeah, the quarterback situation is up in the air. They need to find out who they have at skill players, but none of that is going to matter if that offensive line continues to suck as bad as that offensive line sucked last year. Were they like 130 in your offensive line rankings? Not just mine. Here, I'll I'll read you from Football Outsiders line rankings. You ready? Yeah. Now, keep in mind, kids, there are 130 teams on the FBS level. In line yards, West Virginia ranked 130th. In standard down line yards, West Virginia ranked 130th. In passing down line yards, they ranked 116th. Hooray. In opportunity rate, which is the percentage of carries... That gain at least four yards when the four when there's at least four yards to get to get a first down. Okay, opportunity rate 130th, power success rate 36. So in third and fourth and two or less situations, they were great. Stuff rate, which is basically just not losing yards, 129th. You seeing the theme here with this team? They the offensive line got no push. It did a decent job of keeping teams from penetrating. It just kind of, it was like a stone wall in that it stood there and it couldn't move anything, but it was difficult to move out of the way. And to me, that was a huge problem for that offense last year, no matter who is at quarterback or what they're doing. And if they don't address that and get that fixed, 
it's not going to be that much better of a season. Now, on the plus side, this is a team that's got the schedule working as well as they can for it. Now, they've got two non-conference games that are difficult. They're playing both Florida State and Maryland. That's two Power 5 non-con games. That I'm not sure what you're thinking there, but at least they're both at home or neutral sites. But West Virginia only plays four road games this year. They're playing Texas Tech on the road, Texas on the road, Oklahoma State, and Iowa State. So those are four tough road games, but they're the only road games. Those are eight home games. So that could help us see a team get from at least five and seven to six and six, get them back to a bowl game. But unless that offensive line improves drastically, I don't see much better than six and six or seven and five for the Mountaineers in 2020. Uh, yeah, I don't either. Uh, there's a, I mean, there, there's a level of confidence in Neil Brown getting the most out of his team. I mean, he did last year. Yet, like you mentioned, their offensive line was bad, but I didn't, I didn't see them getting five wins last year. I think I had the under on them, um, and and even that was was with the baked in confidence level in Neil Brown. So I still believe in Neil Brown's coach, and I still believe there's like a little bit of a blind faith that even though I don't love the roster that the roster is probably better than I'm giving it credit for because of the development there. But this is another team that doesn't get a chance to get fully developed in the, in the spring. Uh, I think when you're, when you're in year two of a program and you inherited a situation that was not great, uh, that, that year two spring prior is, is pretty important. Um, more so than most. I mean, he's still really in the establishing a culture phase here. And so when you look up and you got a couple quarterbacks that, you know, you don't have a ton of confidence in and you lost a couple playmakers from last year and your O-line isn't any good and the only good one you had on your O-line is about to get drafted. And I, I just, I don't know where to go with this team, but I am, I am sort of allowing for some natural improvement uh, as as Neil Brown continues this this march. So what what did Neil Brown do? Did Neil Brown just uh, is it was it the work at Troy just sort of gets like uh, the thumbs up? Is it because he's just a good looking guy? <laughs> like is it like what what did he do to get all of us on board? Because I'm on board. I, I, I'm with you. Like there's some blind faith in me thinking that that was a coach that coming up. I was like I I think because he he came from Kentucky right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and, he, and, it, and he wasn't a great offensive coordinator, no. Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky so I, fans I, not huge fans of him. Yeah, I wasn't exactly like, you know, touting the Neil Brown to Troy hire as some great hire, but I mean, I just think he inherited a team that won three wins two years prior, had four wins the year before. Um. Or, I'm sorry, no, three wins the year before he got hired. He, he led him to a four-win season in year one, and then he had three straight ten-win seasons with Troy, including that one year where he beat LSU. LSU. I mean, I just – it was pretty remarkable the the way he, you know, built out that Troy program as quickly as he did um, and put, made them as consistent as he did. So uh, I, I just think he's – you know, he is one of these coaches that is – he's got some air raid backgrounds but he's been managed to sort of instill a physicality to his offenses. He, I think, is a is holistic in his approach to coaching, seeing big picture, not just as X's and O's guy. I just think the the way he's presented himself and his vision has been impressive sort of every step of the way. 
Yeah, I think if you look at Neil, if if you look at his coaching career, like maybe that year as the offensive coordinator at Kentucky was just he wasn't ready or just wasn't the right fit and it didn't work out and he, you know, he learned from it. And he moved on. You mentioned the way he started at Troy and finished. And I think I think the best way to look at it or nice way to put it is he lost eight games overall and five games in the Sun Belt in his first season. The next three seasons, he lost eight games overall and five games in the Sun Belt. So he has a proven track record. He's shown that he could take a program that isn't in the best condition and build it up and build it into something good and not just have the one good season, but stack good season on good season on good season. Now, doing that in the Sun Belt is very much a different task than going to be able to do it at West Virginia in the Big 12, particularly with the state that he took over West Virginia in. Because, you know, Dana got out while the getting was good because that was a team that had lost a lot and that kind of down season was going to come and it probably would have resulted in Dana being fired had he stuck around. So it's not like he stepped into a ready-made position. He took over a program that had, you know, he had to bring in a couple transfers at quarterback just to have some bodies around to find somebody to play the position. And he did the best as what he could with it. And while I don't think that we're going to see the kind of six-win improvement in year two that he had at Troy, I do still have faith in Neil Brown in that he's going to be able to get this team winning games and maybe not winning Big 12 titles, but at least making it a respectable Big 12 program that you have to you know take seriously. Jarrett Dagey, younger brother of Seth Dagey, former Texas Tech uh, quarterback, and Austin Kendall, most notably... Uh, picked by us to beat out Kyler Murray for the starting job at Oklahoma. Right? Another winner on our part. <laughs> uh, all right, Texas Tech, speaking of, four and eight last season, two and seven in conference play. Jet Duffy transferred out of the program. That leaves Alan Bowman, the oft-injured Alan Bowman. Alan Bowman and Charlie Brewer competing for the who going to make it through the year. Uh, Alan Bowman has 10 starts across two years with that long injury history. We do have a, a very, very interesting and fun skill position player for Alan Bowman in TJ Vasher, 6'6 player, has really flashed um, throughout the has flashed throughout last season. Offensive line loses three starters um, and on the defensive side, you lose Jordan Brooks, a really, really productive NFL draft caliber player. But Jordan Brooks was a good player on a bad defense for Texas Tech. Horrible defense. Horrible defense for Texas Tech. So there are there are a lot of places that uh, that we can point to. We've got issues to diagnose, and so as we're looking ahead to the the fall in Lubbock, what do you think is keeping Matt Wells up at night? The defense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think if we look at Matt Wells' history, who he is as a coach, he's, you know, a defensive coach. He's always had strong defenses, and he came into Texas Tech last year and did not have one. So that's to me, is going to be interesting for this team is to see what kind of improvement they can make in year two because this is a team that allowed 30.3 points per game last year. The only Big 12 team to allow more was Kansas, and that's, you know, kind of like a – I don't even know if you should count. If Kansas is the only one behind you, I feel like you're in last place. Put it that way. So I think that's an area that needs to improve for Texas Tech. And Chip, you mentioned the offensive line. They do lose three starters, and that's big because that Texas Tech offensive line last year was actually you know, pretty good. It wasn't really the most 
heralded nationally. But if you look at the advanced stats, like the ones I just read across for West Virginia, you know, this is a team that pretty much finished in, at least in the top 50 in every single one of those categories and finished in the top 10 in a number of them. So this was a good unit. So losing those three guys is a problem. Then, of course, Jet Duffy is gone. So I feel like that's going to be interesting to see how they go with the quarterback situation. But I do think this is one of those teams, 4-8 and eight last year, 2-7 and seven in the conference. I don't know what I'm really basing it on more than anything than gut feel. I feel like this is a Texas Tech team that should at least get to a bowl game this year and might sneak up on a few people. Wow. Well, what you, so you guys got to remember, Jet Duffy was only in there because Alan Bowman got hurt. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and even – Apparently, the Maverick McIver kid, who was a what a redshirt freshman last year, uh, apparently he was even the guy that they would have gone with over Jet Duffy had had he been healthy. But he was banged up too, and so I think the the two quarterbacks that they prefer to have on this roster are here. Um, and so I think the and and if you look at their returning production, like they're gonna be pretty stacked at wide receiver, like. I think this team is going to be able to score a lot of points. And we're getting into to year two and Matt Wells. And uh, I, I think the guy, you know, the guy who made the, Jordan love all the money that he's about to make. Yeah. Look what Jordan, what look, look what Jordan love did without Matt Wells. Right. Uh, Shout out to Pete Prisco taking Jordan love number five overall in the CBS sports HQ mock draft today, by the way, all that I'm feeling it five. <laughs> uh, but look, I think the defense is certainly going to be something that that needs to be improved. I, I, Keith Patterson is a guy that's got a pretty good reputation, the defensive coordinator there. Um, he's been playing opposite this offense now for a few years, dating back to Utah State. Uh, I think he's I think he's capable of getting this defense improved. Um, they're getting a, a transfer in Brandon Randall from uh, from Michigan State, who's a pretty good linebacker. So that that helps there. They got a JUCO kid and Creshawn Merriweather, who's who's a good player. That so they're, they're probably two first year starters at linebacker to help make up for for that loss. Um, you know, that, I think they've got some players in the secondary. I think this team they're sort of huddled up over there in, in West Texas, and you know they they're not. Not super mainstream. Not don't get talked about a lot. Quarterbacks have been sort of what well, they play. Feel like they played like three different quarterbacks last year. I think this team could surprise some people. And and again, it's a shame we didn't have spring to just test that theory. But I I, I would think that they're going to continue to improve heading into twenty twenty. Texas Tech potential over candidate for win totals. I'm, they're on my list of possibilities. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. I would blindly guess over without seeing the number. Just to but, the, the idea that like you, the the expectations are going to be low, and you believe that they can exceed those. Yeah, and 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 there's a level of if look if. Ooh, wait a second. A, an unnamed an unnamed casino did release win totals today. Texas Tech's at six. <sighs> a good number so here, so what i would i'm curious as we close out big 12 part one do you have the whole big 12 in front of you yes 
Who? What's the lowest? What's the lowest number? Like what? Not the lowest number. What, what team has the lowest number? Kansas. Other than Kansas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. West West Virginia five and a half. Okay, it's almost worth like betting. Like it's almost worth playing over on your first uh, on just your first average team, and if that's West Virginia, that's West Virginia, and just betting on the parity in that league shaking out to where you know so, so there no. You can't really guess who's going to be the ninth best team in that league. Can't you can't accurately guess who's going to be the ninth best team. You can maybe guess who's going to be the tenth best, but I think that's a hard needle to thread. Picking the ninth best team in that league. They do a, a good job of making it tough on you though, with one, two, three, four teams all between five and a half and six and a half wins. And they've got yeah. TCU at six and a half chips, so. I know which way you're going. <laughs> Gary, it's at chip underscore Patterson. <laughs> Change my mind that TCU is not just Kansas State. You even both wear purple. I know you've got some of the same mock turtlenecks for both schools. I know it. <laughs> uh, all right. Now let's bring in Ben Kirchival for a recap and of the final announcement of the 90s pop music bracket. Getting Ben Kerchival back here as the the nine the the next chapter the final chapter of the '90s music bracket at CBS Sports over on the College Football page. We'd like to thank first of all all of you who have gone and voted and participated in this uh, this process and this experiment. We might have well, we actually didn't have anything to do with choosing the songs. That was all the American public during the 1990s. Uh, we didn't have anything to do with choosing the winners. That was the voting public here in 2020. And uh, and Ben, as the as the overseer, as the 90s music bracket czar, as the as the person who is who has led this ship all across its journeyed course and brought it back to the dock. Um, I I guess the is the the winners announced right. Like we've the winner is official. Okay, so you got to rub me the right way, honey. The ex Tina fans came out. Christina Aguilera wins over Notorious B.I.G.'s Hypnotize. Genie in a bottle is your winner. Uh, for I mean Ben, like the you've you've seen all the numbers. You followed the path. Like before we get into the the path to the championship and sort of how both those both those songs got to the end. You know, were you surprised at the result of the championship? Extremely surprised. And look, we all know about FSU Twitter. We all know about Iowa Twitter, Texas A and M Twitter. Texas A&M Twitter. There are certain factions out there that feel like a vocal majority because of the passion and the the ferocity of which they come out in hordes. There must be a Christina Aguilera Twitter that I was unaware of previously. It's either that or we talked about early on in this process how far would Smooth make it in an ironic fashion – same thing with I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. I'm almost one, I'm wondering if the further along Genie in a Bottle went, it almost became this cult of personality thing where people started voting for it because it was so unexpected and it kept 
toppling off these titans. We'll get to them in a minute because the path is impeccable. What X Tina had to go through, but here she is, a worthy, a worthy champion. champion, a worthy champion, no doubt. Yeah, you want to look? So people voted. Yeah. It's not like we picked it. That's true. All right. Well, let's let's review what was the path for uh, Christina Aguilera. Who were those Titans that she took down on the way to the championship game? Okay. So for first weekend, rounds one and two, you could you could give her that weekend. Uh, first round defeated seven seed because you love me by Celine Dion. Won it handedly too, about three votes to one, which you know. That's uh, that makes sense. That's a that's a classic ten over seven. That's no big deal. Uh, round two did beat. I think it was boys to men end of the road. So that was a little uh, little blue blood upset there, if you will, in round two to get the sweet sixteen. And that's uh, a <laughs> that's 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 not boys to men's best song though, or it's most it's, dangerous in the tournament. No, that's like a uh, that's like a two seed Duke where they got a couple they got a couple faults. You can get them in the first round. Yeah, you know, that's like one of those. That's like that's one of those uh, senior laden Duke teams. Maybe not quite the NBA talent. Right, but, right, right. Right, maybe more some veteran talent than NBA talent. So, so you're so, saying there's like that bo- into the boysman into the road is like more Brian Zubek's than Zion Williamson's. Yeah, exactly. So Christina then gets to the Sweet 16, and this is where it picks up. I thought this is how we do it by Montel Jordan was going to make a run. Easily, by 20% difference, Christina just totally trounces him. So I'm sitting there going, okay, Christina, I see you. I didn't think – I thought you'd make a little sweet 16 run, but I wasn't so sure about after that. She gets the pass this. This is where, though, in the Elite Eight ship, this is where I knew it was serious. She takes down Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, number one seed – the last remaining blue blood in the tournament, as far as seeding goes, about sixty-four percent to thirty-six percent in the voting. Wow! And then, and then in the final four, this was her closest one in the run. She upends Gangsta's Paradise, and at this point, throw out the seeding. Seeding doesn't matter. Right. They're all jams at this point, and she's just blowing through. So we get to the championship with, with Hypnotize and, and Biggie. And I remember talking to our, our, our editor, Adam, and he goes, ah, oh, Notorious B.I.G. will win. I go, I don't know, man. I've been following this thing. <laughs> I'm not so sure about any of this anymore. Lo and behold, there she is. All right, so the, it's it sounds like you don't have uh, – you believe in X-Tina, and you believe that there is some value to Genie in a Bottle as like a bop, but you just – think that compared to some of the heavyweights that it faced it that's where that's where some of the the fan support pushed it over the top it must be because we talked i think this might have been even a couple weeks ago when we were starting when we were doing like first maybe second round coverage with Fernelli. you and i both talked about i think we both agree that i don't we don't even think g in the bottle is her best song on her self-titled debut truth yeah yeah we think it's come on over right so do I think Genie in the Bottle is the best song from the 90s? No, um, not by a mile. I thought there, you could give me a handful of other songs that are infinitely better, let alone, you know, but 
in the tournament, you know what they always say about the tournament? It's it's not always the best team. Sometimes it's the healthiest team. Sometimes it's the healthiest team on the path that they're on. Where do they run into certain other teams? So there's a little bit of that element to it in terms of, of picking the best song. But again, we just ran through her path to the national championship. It wasn't like she was knocking over fluffers on her way there. So, I mean, look, I got nothing but respect for Christina's vocals. Lord knows she's got pipes. Right. I can dig it, but I don't, I mean, I, I don't agree with the final choice, but right. that's just my opinion. All right. So, uh, what was, what was, did hypnotize face a similarly difficult path on the way to the no, championship? Not as difficult. I mean, but when you get to the championship, everyone's knocked off somebody big. But like uh, round one, and remember, six as a 16 seed, you're you're running into by seeding. Supposedly, you're you're running into a lot of heavyweights. That can be kind of debated with music. But in round one, defeated the Macarena. I don't think that was anyone's surprise though. Macarena was get that out of here. That's that's bad. Uh, round two, knocked off Living La Vida Loca. Niche mm. song for the time. I don't know that anybody's you know hyping up to listen to living la vida loca in 2020 but again he gets the sweet 16 knocked off bone thugs and harmony the crossroads wow pretty convincingly that's a nice that's a nice win elite eight took down jump by crisscross bonafide 90s jam so you know a couple of tough ones final four they beat creep by tlc probably the the weakest of the the, the weaker of the final four matchup um but you know, I, I wouldn't say it was as, you know, much of a murderer's row as Christina, but it certainly had its its matchups. But again, what it's not even just that they advanced this far. It's some of the margins of victory. I mean, a lot of these were not even close. Wow. Biggie, Biggie fans turned out. Xtina fans turned out. Uh, with, the, with the championship all in the rear view, where where do you think there might have been a few of the like surprise songs that you know either either number one that you were disappointed it fell short or ones where you just were completely caught off guard by the kind of distance that the song ended up going? Yeah, I I think even though I I thought this is how we do it was going to come out of the CD region, I I agreed with you that I will always love you was going to be a tough one to to knock down and that didn't even make it to the final four. So I, I think I was a little bit disappointed by that just because I thought out of that region, that was, that was the best song that or you know, Montel Jordan, but I thought that was the probably overall strongest song. And you sort of hope that at some point the, the merits of the actual song itself, get it to a certain, you know, get it so far. And I just, I thought that one fell a little bit short and then I don't know that the, I don't know that there's anyone maybe other than TLC. TLC had I think three Elite Eight songs: Waterfalls, Creep, Waterfalls, and Creep and No Scrubs. Ah, uh, yeah. And I sort of figured. I mean, Creep made it kind of far to the Final Four. I, I sort of thought Waterfalls was gonna was gonna get, make a little bit of a further run, but I think they ran into Gangsta's Paradise. Which I would I understand. Say, I mean, like, yeah, iconic part of the 90s. So, I don't know. But I, if you look at a lot of the high seeds early on, 
like like Mariah Carey had seven songs in the bracket, and she was all I mean she had all over the seatings, but she had a lot of high seatings. Boys to Men had a lot of high seatings, and Mariah didn't even make it out of the first weekend, which okay, whatever. I mean it's you know it's people's preference, but I kind of thought some of those bigger names that had a whole bunch of songs were going to at least make it a little bit more interesting down the road, but a lot of them got bounced early, and that was just kind of a surprise to me. I just thought they might have had strength in numbers, and they didn't. How about this as a uh, as a working theory for the exercise? Uh, the songs that had high seeds did so because, as uh, as listeners will remember, it was based on how many weeks you were at number one, and mm. so... Therefore, the higher the seed, the higher the fatigue. And yeah. so it's like, yeah, Mariah and Boys to Men had a bunch of a uh, bunch of huge chart topping pop hits, but all those weeks at number one mean that in 2020 just doesn't hit the same as some of those songs that weren't uh shoved down our throats or in our earbuds as much. I also think Mariah took a hard hard publicity spill on that new year's eve thing or she do you remember that like three or four years ago yeah was that to sing something and it it was the wrong song and she just stood up there i've never felt bad for mariah carey in my entire life except for that one moment (laughs) where that girl had she had to fill like three minutes of airtime just apologizing profusely (laughs) for the wrong song being played i don't know if she's ever recovered from that I mean, I just go back and watch her Cribs episode, and then I remember she's doing all right. She's okay. She's doing all right. Uh, you're fantastic, Ben. Thank you so much for guiding us through this. Uh, we will be sure to be linking up more here in the coming weeks as we uh, start to take some deep dives into topics from around the college football. You know, I've, I've been telling people, man, they say, oh, there's no sports. What are you going to do? I'm like, buddy, we didn't have sports on the calendar in college football. So we're just, we, we are going to be as prepared for the preseason as anyone else in the world. Right? Yeah. So we're gonna we're diving into those topics now. We'll be sure to link up soon. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Kirchival. Uh thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Ben Kirchival. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Kirchival. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Tom Fernell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We will reconvene later in the week for the second half of the Big Twelve. That would be our Oklahoma's. That Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, that would be our Kansases, our Kansas, Kansas State, and Iowa State in there as well as we round out the Big 12 for this week. We'll be getting into some NFL draft conversations here in the coming weeks as well, uh, interrupting some of the spring gleaning series, and mailbox is open. So if you want to add a question for a future mailbag, you can do so by going to the Cover 3 podcast page, leave a five-star review, Uh, and then go ahead and put your question in there for the mailbag and it will be addressed in a future mailbag episode gentlemen thank you very much thank you It is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. I 
A new rain is coming to the South Side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.